Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast of politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrew. I'm Karima Talwar-Kapoor. And I'm Alvin Tejo. Today, it was our second budget week in Ontario in as little as four months. I just think they should start doing this quarterly. A budget every quarter is, I think, my preferred frequency. But we've had some time to process and digest the four government's plan for the last leg of the pandemic. So we're going to be doing that today. Speaking of which, we should also probably uh, check into where we're at in the pandemic at this point. With case counts rising again and more dangerous new variants, it is looking a little bleak. But first, it's been a little while. Friends, how are you? You know, at this point, surviving at this point in the pandemic, just happy to be making it. Yeah, I'm okay. My parents got their vaccine uh, last week, so I was happy about that. It's like, you know, progress at least. My kids made it through their first week of school since December without uh, <laughs> without an outbreak and having to be sent home. So that's positive. That's progress. Yeah. And that is our regular update on where are Alvin's kids? <laughs> A recurring Ontario Loud segment. But yeah, no, I really feel that, especially Grandma. Like, I feel like actually, just thank you, listeners, for bearing with us while we took a break last week. I've felt the moment has been really hard lately, and I really felt some serious demotivation last week. And normally, I love sitting down and writing the pod. It's like a highlight of my week. It's a part of my Saturday morning routine, and I just could not bring myself to do it. And I'm not a person who's like ever dealt with any kind of depressive thing like that before, and I did last week. And so, thank you, listeners, for bearing with us, and you guys for all understanding too. But yeah, I just want to say having a little bit of space, taking a step back, taking a breather really helped. And if there are folks, if I was feeling it, I imagine there are people out there who are maybe listening to this that felt similar things. So I uh, wanted to throw that out there. If you're feeling alone, demotivated, anything like that, you are you're not. It is a really super difficult time right now. So wanted to say that before we, we kicked in, both as an explainer as to why we took a week off and you know maybe that's helpful to someone who might be listening and if we're good with share time budget 2020 uh, sam can we start maybe with a couple of the program spending highlights what stood out to you and what the four government announced to ontario last week yeah for sure i, I mean we're going to get into this but in terms of new spending uh, proposals I would say the major things that stood out were continued investment into long-term care. So the phase-in around the hours of care minimum standard and building new spaces was certainly a highlight. Two major temporary enhancements to tax credits. So the care, child care tax credit that they introduced last year is going to be enhanced by 20% on a one-time basis for 2021. And they are creating the Ontario Jobs Training Tax Credit, which is up to $2,000 for 50% of eligible expenses for tuition and training that builds on the similar federal uh, tax credit, but in a, in a, again, is temporary in nature. For small businesses, they're doing another round and they're doubling the value of the grants to Ontario small businesses. And they're also introducing sort of a parallel program for tourism supports of another $400 million for um, the tourism sector in Ontario. They're further making enhancements to broadband support to roll out broadband internet, um, they say, to every region of Ontario by 2025. They are introducing regional opportunity investment tax credits. So they're, or sorry, not introducing, they're enhancing those tax credits by about 30%. They're doing another round of financial relief for municipalities, which is about a billion dollars. And then there's sort of a suite of new housing support programs, which I'm sure we'll get into in a bit, but $255 million in new provincial funding to municipal service managers for social assistance, where they can uh, provide relief for rent assistance and other longer term housing. 
$18 million over three years of housing support for uh, victims of domestic violence or human trafficking, and then $13 million over three years for housing for people with de- developmental disabilities. So I think those are the highlights. It's a pretty predictable narrative, I think. Like, let's put a bunch of money into tourism business, get people out there for, you know, the inevitable bounce back. I think they want people thinking about the economy as it will be in six months as opposed to where it is uh, today. But this budget, I think, inevitably left some stuff out, which I know we'll want to highlight. So, Grima, can you highlight what you think some of the major gaps in the budget are? I think if we look beyond the headlines and ask ourselves what the pandemic revealed and then evaluate that against what's announced in the budget, there is a lot missing. If we go back to a year ago, the rallying cry of the pandemic was you can't stay safe if you don't have a home. And absent the pieces that Sam spoke about earlier and the $255 million investment to keep people who live or who are receiving supports through the shelter system safe, there's nothing really on affordable housing in the budget. We know that housing affordability and affordable housing is a major issue for Ontarians before the pandemic and exacerbated during the pandemic. And the types of investments that the government spoke about in its budget aren't actually enough to mitigate the pressures that people are facing over the long term. The second bucket, I'd say, is that we've seen through the pandemic how unequal our society is and the various ways in which people experience inequalities. And on this, there was absolutely nothing in terms of a rate increase for people receiving social assistance. This marks uh, the third year in a row that people living in deep poverty across the province did not see a rate increase. And so while the cost of living has increased over the past three years, but there's no subsequent rate increase, this is in effect a cut by stealth, right? Because what $733 afforded you if you're a single adult on Ontario Works three years ago is not the same thing that you're going to be able to buy with that same $733 today. And I think a lot of people had their hopes set out in hoping that the province would say something about paid sick days and protected paid sick leave in the budget, and that was missing. I'd say that we've seen Uh, through the pandemic, how labor market attachment between women and men deferred during the pandemic and that the recovery has been a bit slower for women compared to men in terms of return back to work. And because we are in a quote, she session, the importance of childcare has been the top policy discussion over the past year. And while the minister's budget speech made reference to this, there was actually very little in terms of actual investments in childcare in the budget. So I think yeah. I want to touch on that, what you were saying there, Grima, around what the minister said versus what was actually in the budget numbers. Because I think the minister did, to his credit, a phenomenal job of selling the idea that they were doing everything they could to help everyone who's been affected by this pandemic. He even gave a shout out to opposition leader Andrea Horvath, thanking her for her keeping the government to account, talking about the she session and really paying excellent lip service to a number of the concerns that people have been having, talking about more education investments, talking about expanding healthcare. But when you start diving into it and you realize that a number of those education numbers are still not insufficient and also less than what was before the government came in terms of after they made all the cuts. 
and also these hospital expansions. It seemed like everyone was getting a hospital, but it didn't, when you start looking into it, it's really expansion and upgrading in certain areas and adding wings and stuff like that. And well, you know, he wanted to sound like Oprah, you know, you get a hospital, you get a hospital, but you're looking back into it and like, what does this really mean? And are you actually doing the things that you say you're going to do? And exactly what you're saying, where's the actual supports for individual people, for frontline workers, for women who are actually more affected, where are the programs for this? And I didn't see those things, right? This was definitely, I think, one of the best types of lip service budgets that you could make and say all the right things with the right tone that, to be honest, might still get them reelected because that's what people are going to hear. Most people aren't going to dive into the numbers to really understand how much this means and, and how they're going to be affected. I think, yeah, this is a very classic conservative budget, right? To soak up the fiscal room that you do have with taking in less revenue through new tax credits for more business support. I was surprised, to be honest, given the amount of criticism that the Ontario Small Business Support Grant has come under for the businesses that are excluded, right? Because it's only for those who are actually in lockdown, not those affected by lockdown. Although there is the federal support program through the wage subsidy, in theory, that's supporting people affected by just revenue drops, but aren't shut down. But I thought, given how close the PCs are to the business community, I was surprised they didn't react to that criticism in any real way. And I think to the point that Grim made, like, these, especially on the t- childcare tax credit, that is not going to create any spaces. Tax relief never does. But even if you believed it did, because it's one time only, of course, it's not going to create any spaces. So it's like, and you know, more, one thing I didn't mention in my roundup was they're doing another round of payments to parents, they're like $400 checks. So it's like, you know, it's money of the door that could be being invested in services to support vulnerable people. But you know, this is who was elected, right? They were elected on this philosophy and they're implementing it. Well, it's a Band-Aid, right? It's not a real solution. It's, we'll do, we're doing this for COVID, but we're not going to give this to you after COVID. Yeah. Can I just say to the $400 payments, the care credits, I remember criticizing this approach at the beginning of the pandemic. And actually, I think most, most of you pointed out to me that its parents do have technology costs at this point. And I think I grudgingly was like, okay, you know what, this actually might be a situation where a payment to a parent of 400, 500 bucks to buy some offset, some technology costs makes a ton of sense. And, but I also, but like, at this point, I really like, I don't understand it. I can think of almost no more inefficient way to invest a billion dollars in education than to give every parent $400. Like, you know, how many with a billion dollars, like how many teachers could you hire? What could you do with special education? What could you like, there's just so much you could do with a you know, like want to talk about spending money wisely and being fiscally conservative, one of the least effective ways to drive results that I can I, out of the education system that I can think of. I mean, if it was about results, they'd have operating funding increases. This is about making people feel good about what the conservatives are doing. And so reminding parents, hey, remember when we gave you 400 bucks? Yeah, that was a good thing, right? Like you that that helped you buy a new iPad or whatever it was for your kids to keep them entertained. And, you know, don't forget to vote for us. Yeah. But I wonder, like, at this point in the pandemic, like, maybe we we have to bring back some of the discussions that we were having at this time last year around the importance of government in our everyday life. Like, I think that the past year has made that more tangible more than ever. And so these initiatives or investments that the government is making isn't very efficient or effective. If you were to ask me, 
But on, on the other hand, I wonder if, you know, people are actually asking, maybe I don't need this $400, or even if I do need this $400, what is it taking away from in terms of the role of government in my life and in my family's life? And that's a philosophical discussion. People don't have time to think about those things, but I think it's incumbent on people like us to resurface those arguments time and time again. Yeah, no, agreed. And just picking up on something you were saying, Sam, a little bit earlier about this being a really conservative budget, I want to spend just a little bit of time on just what this budget told us about the province's expense profile revenue and like what the actual numbers are telling us about what this plan is, because it is so conservative. So this, at a high level, the budget is projecting about $3 billion in revenue growth, mostly from taxation, and about a billion in reduced expense due to mostly pandemic spending winding down. So that is a significant amount of increased fiscal room. And when you look at governments that would make different choices, this is a government that is, I think, choosing to invest that flexibility in a limited way in healthcare, and then basically using the rest to reduce the deficit. Although they have said, I think they got a lot of attention in the media for saying that they expect deficits to continue for most of the next decade. They are putting some of that flexibility that they have from reduced expense and increased revenue into reducing the deficit. So I think we can expect to see them continue to pursue that. It continues to be a priority for them. And I think it's also important to ask ourselves, what does that come at the cost of? And when we look at the program spending in basically everything outside of healthcare, it is flat for at least the next three years, either entirely flat, slightly reduced, or a very slight increase that is you know, far less than what we would expect the population growth and the use of those services to be. So specifically, we see healthcare spending jumping 8% in this budget over 2021 with another 3% over the next three years. So that's an 11% over the three years. That's where they're putting their money. Everything else is, is flat. And in children's social services specifically, there's a slight reduction. So I think you know, you're going to expect to see healthcare eat up a bigger and bigger share of the pie. The other thing I wanted to highlight before maybe diving into discussion a little bit is they are spending a bit more than they originally budgeted for this year. The budget had an updated outlook for this fiscal year that showed they're spending about $3.2 billion over what they had budgeted for programs. And this, I think it will help them avoid the criticism that I think we've talked about a number of times that they're just going to bank the extra fiscal room that they gave themselves for deficit reduction. It is important to note though, that all of this overspend is not actually like them going above it was basically them moving contingency funding that they had into program spending. So, and it is just an interim outlook there. So they're signaling that they expect to spend all of their contingency this year to have nothing left in the tank, which I'm sure is politically important to them, but it's an interim projection. Uh, we will know what the truth is when public accounts come out. We also don't totally know what the support for people and jobs fund is being spent on some of these contingency funds. And so it'll be also interesting to see, I think, after the fact, when you look at some of these contingency funds, a lot of which they appear to now be saying that they are going to allocate and expend in a really short period of time, what kinds of things that that COVID funding was spent on. So yeah, I think this is a very, very conservative budget. And weirdly struck me as a little bit Oh, underwhelming. If like I'm thinking about like what am I putting in the window in terms of like big election stuff? Like this is going to be their election budget. Like what does this tell us? I think about their election strategy, about their message. Like what do they want families and people, voters to to get from this? Well, the, there was a, there was a like unattributed quote from an insider that said 
basically that, which is like the goal was to not get attention. Like they're riding high in the poles. Don't rock the boat, basically. And I think it probably achieved that. If that was the goal, mission accomplished. Maybe people do remember they just got 400 bucks and their vaccine, and that's good enough to get by the Ford government another term. But definitely, I think, a missed opportunity and maybe some risk in tying themselves entirely to the vaccine rollout and COVID, which is not going exactly like 100% swimmingly. I mean, we talk about a lot of how the bubble exists of people who follow and understand politics in Ontario. So what's the sentiment that most Ontarians are thinking about? They were probably remembering a bit of chaos before COVID with the Ford government and that he probably wasn't doing that well. And then their feeling is now that he's doing better. (laughs) because the economy hasn't collapsed. People aren't in the streets. So I don't think they need to do anything else, really, in their opinion, of increasing the bar or really treating and addressing other systemic issues uh, other than let's keep the lights on and remind people that it could have been worse (laughs) and that we shepherded them through this thing, right? I still think however bullish people want to be on the federal government getting reelected, we should be equally as bullish on the provincial government getting reelected. People are not going to separate the two. Mm -hmm. And I'd also just say, I'm not a politico, but if you postpone dealing with some of these issues today and you get reelected or get elected, if another party comes into power, these are still going to be your issues. And so I just logically don't understand why punting issues around people living in poverty, around housing, like the number one biggest issue right now, I can guarantee is the cost of housing. And just punting that down for another year or two, when you've got a second term, just it's still your issue, you still have to deal with it. And so why not deal with it when it's not as bad as it can be two years from now, if you just let the issues sort of simmer over time? I don't get it. That's I mean, that's certainly an opportunity for the opposition parties, right? I, you know, I think if the NDP or the Liberals are going to make any headway, they have to come up with some sort of affordable housing affordability plan that is easily understandable, tangible, will result in, you know, real things happening to affect the market or to give people more access. And they need to do it soon because people are not going to have enough time to get acquainted with those plans. Yeah. I was reflecting too on on this topic and our discussion about MZOs over the past while. Like, like the opposition seems to have really now picked up on the Ford government's abuse of, you know, ministerial zoning orders to override local planning to do these kinds of things. And it's been really interesting to me to see how the, the government has doubled down on that basically as an affordable housing strategy. And while I think we feel on this podcast, that is a like just obviously not true like you can't just make sweetheart deals with developers and then get them to commit to affordable housing targets like that's not going to solve the problem i think we feel like that but i sort of wonder if for a lot of the conservative voting base if that doesn't read as ford is taking a active role in affordable housing and it's great that the government's getting involved here and that's actually what people who don't know a lot about the issue would read it as and i actually think there's like some danger in progressives and the opposition focusing on the MZO, like the process issue, and not on that issue of, hey, isn't 
are aren't our houses like a little expensive here like you know maybe quickly before we we leave budget i always like to ask if there was anything that just struck you as weird so one of the things that caught my attention was the 413 <laughs> which is the highway that's supposed to go around the GTA. I think it's definitely alluding to politics around the 905. And I think there was a pretty swift, in most circles, not everywhere, but a lot of the channels, obviously, that I follow of people against the highway being built basically through the green belt and the government not reacting in the sense that they are canceling the project. But there was supposed to be $8 billion for this in I can't remember if it was estimates or the fall economic statement, but it kind of disappeared from this budget. And that seemed to be a pretty quick reaction to uh, the pushback that they were seeing. And you could tell with where they were announcing new hospitals, where they're really targeting picking up seats or not trying to lose seats, especially around Brampton and the York region. There's definitely a lot of that regional politics going on. Well, since this budget seem to play into a political strategy of let's just ride the pandemic out. Alvin, how's that? You looked at a little bit this week. It's just how we're doing in the pandemic. Just a couple of uh, high level updates here. I think generally speaking, you can say things aren't looking so great anymore. The trend is going in the wrong direction. Uh, A couple of regions have recently gone back into the gray zone, Hamilton being one of them. Ottawa and the rest of eastern Ontario are moving back into the red zone. And if you look at the daily case numbers, especially in the hot zones in and around Toronto and Peel, it definitely looks like we're in the third wave of COVID cases and they're increasing day to day. We're averaging about 2,500 new cases daily over the weekend. And we've reached 400 ICU patients with COVID-related symptoms. Also concerning, especially for me, is the number of active cases in Ontario schools with a couple of hundred being added every day in Ontario publicly funded schools, now over 2,100 active cases of children with COVID. So we're definitely hearing a number of public health pundits openly discussing the need and necessity and planning for more lockdowns, especially in the hot zones like Toronto and Peel. So that's a bit concerning, although it's happening at the same time that we're um, getting some good news on the vaccine front with 3.2 million doses expected to come into Canada this week, which is interesting because you can see governments are obviously trying to ride the wave of the positive news, but Doug is maintaining his partisan tone last week, blaming the feds for not providing enough, while his own government's admitting that they have over 430,000 doses in freezers. But, you know, there's been a lot of the vaccine conversation lately that I want to talk about here. And it's around my concern around vaccine hesitancy, because there's, I think, a lot of discussion out there and language around the efficacy of certain vaccines. Uh, A lot of folks concerned about not getting vaccines. I saw uh, somebody shared with me some right-wing propaganda around, you know, aborted fetuses being used as materials in the vaccines. And you can see Premier Kenny in Alberta saying that no Albertan will have to take a vaccine that has aborted materials inside it. That is all just completely made up and people not understanding how stem cells work. But this is a real thing that is happening. And you're getting conversations in churches uh, and religious groups talking about these types of things and saying they don't want to take the vaccine because of those reasons. On top of the fact that I think most people don't understand how the efficacy pieces do work, right? So, I mean, I don't know where to start here, but how are you feeling about that? Yeah, I think just to pick up on, on the last point, I'm surprised that the like heavy PR efforts, you know, commercials and literature in the mail and all those things around vaccine 
you know, efficacy and safety haven't started. Like there was so much talk about how we had to prepare for that multiple levels of government talking about funding those efforts, but like, it's pretty much radio silence. The whole rollout I think has been a disaster in so many different ways. Like this is, you know, as we've said before, the single most important thing we will do collectively as a province in a generation. And it feels like we don't have our sharpest minds on the task as we watched, you know, General Hillier walk away from the task in the middle of it. Yeah, it's all a bit, it's all a bit depressing, really. Yeah, yeah. To your question about how I'm feeling, not great. <laughs> it is actually just reminding me how badly we were set up for this by having 34 different plans, like having this devolved approach to governance on this front all kinds of things like different ages are eligible for vaccines in different parts of the province like i actually thought last week that you could get one if you were 70 but you couldn't get in new york region you couldn't get in peel it was you know different age ranges and the the whole astrazeneca pilot changing in different regions i mean like i don't blame folks for being confused there's not one message about it i think we are seeing the weaknesses of a of a governance structure that devolves things even if you wanted to keep that governance structure i don't think there's an excuse for the lack of central public communications around just hey get your vaccine like it just seems like that could be and could and should be way way more now but also in terms of communications and getting people out to get vaccinated there's been a lot of discussion around vaccine hesitancy around amongst different groups so racialized communities for example or indigenous communities and I'd say that amongst these communities, there is an active sort of effort to A, recognize the history that these groups have with, quote, the medical establishment or with medicine and how sometimes this history and for Indigenous communities, a lot of the time this history is traumatizing. And so I think speaking about that first and foremost is really important. And that's coming from the community. That's not coming from government. And those efforts then are helping people to sort of learn about, we understand why you might be hesitant, but here are the facts. And this is why you should go get the vaccine. And just Alvin and what you were saying around just broad disinformation around the vaccine, there haven't been active efforts to actually debunk that. I haven't seen that in terms of an active effort to debunk those ideas. And so whether some whether premiers or other people in leadership are propagating those ideas is problematic in itself, but there isn't leadership to adequately debunk that. And so the people that are most likely then to get COVID in the first place are are most susceptible, I'd imagine, to this type of disinformation. Yeah, we'll keep coming back to this one, I'm sure. It's, you know, worrying to see where we're at. On a, to end on a positive note, though, I think there is only so much bad logistical planning that the flood of vaccines coming into Ontario can hold back. And so, you know, I think that we'll figure our way to the end of this. I think it's just going to be an annoying, a, a bit of an annoying route. And yeah, we could have probably done so much more. So on that public health awareness, just for anyone who's listening, Every vaccine is good and effective to the point where the Pfizer CEO, there was a Pfizer CEO who got 
a vaccine the other day and he got the Moderna vaccine, which people thought were hilarious. But he said, this is actually really good because I want to highlight the point that I want you to take any vaccine that is put in front of you. I don't care which one it is. They all work really well. Yeah. You know, things have gotten to a point when we're when we're like, yes, CEO of Pfizer. Yes, we stand. <laughs> Um, I saw a tweet that was like, I feel so blessed leading up my whole life. I never knew what company produced the vaccines I took. (laughs) So true. We're like tightly, you know, scrutinizing these things. Brand loyalty. Moderna till I die. Okay. Rapid fire before we, before we wrap up today. I'm excited for this one. Doug Ford picks a former conservative candidate at a press conference to answer a, a question. So it's a former conservative candidate who's now a journalist. The press gallery freaks out about it. And it is revealed on Twitter and then confirmed through Canada reporting that right-wing Sun media columnist Brian Lilly and member of the press gallery is dating Ivana Yellick, Ford's press secretary. This prompted a huge freakout from the Ford communications team. And I'm just excited to hear your takes on this. Oh my God, this could have been a whole segment, Chris. I mean, people were... You know, Brian Lilly was trending all weekend and he's a piece of work for sure. But I mean, conservatives were claiming a number of things and how this is so improper. And then people trying to make comparisons to Robert Benzie's wife, who Rob Benzie is the bureau chief for the Toronto Star at Queen's Park. His wife is a bureaucrat. She's a civil servant, did not ever work directly for Kathleen Wynne. Yet the right wing media definitely took that as an attack every time they every chance they got. So, you know, people sort of saying like, you're, you know, getting a bit of your own medicine here, but even that was in, wasn't inappropriate. This 100% is, how do you not see that, that there's a conflict of interest here? And I mean, you should put quotes around journalists from the softball question. And it's really, how great of a job is your government doing to keep everyone in this province protected? You know what I mean? Like BS questions like that, where there were real legitimate journalists waiting an hour and a half to ask the premier actual questions. I mean, obviously, the hypocrisy is a big thing. I think, secondly, it's not like Brian Lilly was dating just anybody on the Ford team, right? Like, at the head of media relations, like, I just think that the Sun, I don't think it's a problem that they were dating, obviously, but I think the Sun needed to change his beat. Like, I don't know how you sort of square that circle of that conflict of interest. I guess you could disclose it. But even if you disclosed it, I think it would raise important questions do you know what i mean like his beat is queen's park and anyway so i mean i think obviously mistakes were made there but i what i hate is that i actually didn't necessarily agree with the criticism around calling on the former conservative candidate like i hate that those got wrapped together because like some journalists are formerly partisan now they're journalists like i i thought that that was a weird line of attack just to be honest of course his question was a bit like whatever but like you know, lots of media ask ridiculous questions. So uh, that I just I didn't like that. Does that make sense? I don't know. Oh, no, it does. And actually, I think that this episode exposed a real problem in the culture of the QP press gallery. Like, let's be so some conservatives were calling this a sexist attack on on Ivana Yellick. And yeah, like I, I didn't understand that. Like what part of it was sexist? Yeah, I mean, as, yes, as the con- dude. Sorry, I don't know. but It's a conflict of interest, but it's way worse for the son and for Brian. Like he that is actually a more of a reflection on him. Like, you know, having a 
a media voice in next to the government is useful for the government. Not a great look on premier's office, but like I view it, this as way more of a criticism of Brian than of, of her. And Oh yeah. Like, I think she's fine. Like, you know, like date whoever you want, leak to whatever you want. Like, I don't think, that, I don't think she's in the wrong. I think it's about journalism ethics. Yeah. You know what I mean? And also how many people in the Queens park press gallery knew about this? Like, there's no way it wasn't known. And just the, Oh, like I, the, I knew about it like a year ago. Like it's widely known. So like the fact that like the folks who knew, including own uh, our own Sam Andre, who knew about this <laughs> and said nothing. I think it tells us a lot about the potentially too cozy relationship between the gallery and the premier's office and the government. And I think that is good that it's getting a look. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud. We are a podcast about politics and public policy focused on Ontario. Ontario Loud is hosted by Grumatawar Kapoor, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andrew. I'm Chris Martin. We are supported by amazing volunteers. Uh, and Harmon Mundy, who helps us do research and communications. He also sends us lots of funny memes in the group chat. Raheem Khan helps us do communications and social media. And we are so grateful for their support. If you like what you heard, go to iTunes and give us a review or head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and support the pod for less than the price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy. It helps to support our costs like hosting and technology and helps us keep doing this thing for the long term. If you have any thoughts on what you heard, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or Ontario Loud Mail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Last but certainly not least, Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabeg, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat people, and many nations. Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase uh, this history, and we must do everything we can to fight that. It's about more than a land acknowledgement, but uh, we want to end the pod with one. And we stand in solidarity with the First Nations uh, in our community and acknowledge that we have so much more to do and pledge to do what we can on this podcast to uh, further their cause. That's it for us, and we will see you next week.